Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, with the latest installment of the Housing Wire Daily Podcast, where I get to talk to editors and reporters about the most compelling stories and sources they're covering. Today, my guest is senior mortgage reporter Bill Conroy to talk about the latest happenings in the secondary market. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. At PennyMac TPO, you'll get live access to underwriting managers, real bend-over-backwards people, the kind who care about your success as much as their own. As a PennyMac TPO partner, their credit solutions team is standing by to help you quickly solve any underwriting issues throughout the loan process. PennyMac believes the road to greatness is paved with dedicated support. For more information or to price a loan, go to tpo.pennymac.com. PennyMac TPO is a division of PennyMac Loan Services, LLC, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS ID number 35953. Loans not available in New York. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. Bill, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. Really glad to have you. Wow, we have had so much going on. Very, uh, very uh, big things happening. But the the first thing I wanted to talk about was rate volatility. You know, obviously, rate volatility has been one of the biggest concerns for everyone in the mortgage industry this year. You wrote about this topic and how that rate volatility was really impacting the PLS market because of when those loans were locked. Can you walk us through the pain points there? Yeah, well, I'm be honest with you. I'm just a, a lowly mortgage reporter trying to get my head around a very complex <laughs> market and. Uh, um, the, really the, the, I guess the bottom line here is, uh, we were in as, you know, looking back on a very uh, incredibly long period of, uh, relative rate stability and, you know, almost, it seems overnight rates, uh, in the mortgage market, but it really across the board, um, propelled by a number of factors, some of them, you know, banging against each other, kind of whipsawing the market, you know, uh, the pressure to um, raise rates and the Fed moving on that by, you know, caused by inflation, which is what up toward 8% annualized now. Um, and then that was kind of, you know, uh, countervened by the, you know, uh, some of the pressures created by the war in Ukraine and the flight to safety, um, which has the opposite tendency because it moves people back into the, the bond market, or at least the government bond market, and creates more um, demand and tends to uh, lower rates a little bit. So you had this whipsaw going on, making it really hard to, uh, I mean, I can't figure out, I'm, I, there's guys a lot smarter and women a lot smarter than me that are working on it, but, um, you know, it's hard to really price in that environment because uh, it's so unpredictable. But in general, the rising rate market, you know, just the way coupons work, I mean, uh, is, is the longer a, a bond is out there at a lower rate, it's, you know, relatively less worth, worth less than a, a higher rate bond over the same maturity, right? So higher rate bonds are, you know, going to be coming into the market. And I, what's going on now is they're kind of digesting a lot of the 
the deals, record deals, it was tons of volume last year, uh, but it was all at these lower rates, you know, the, you know, really 3%, some sub three, slightly above three. And now we're in an environment where we're at four and above four. Um, and those newer deals still haven't really priced and come into the market. They should be starting to, based on the folks I talked to, right around now, you know, the end of the month. Um, but, you know, even with it, with all this rate volatility going on and, and maybe the deal's not pricing out exactly the way people wanted to, wanted them to, you know, maybe some cases only breaking even or, or, you know, but they're at least making enough money that the deals are moving, right? So we still had record volume compared to last year. I mean, really twice the volume at this point uh, through March uh, that we did last year in 221 and 221 was a big year. So uh, somehow this market keeps moving, um, and you know, even though the Fed bumped, uh, you know, bumped rates a quarter and talked about you know like six more, that's at least a roadmap. And from the folks I talked to in the market, that is better than a, you know, kind of a qualitative. We'll see what happens because then the market definitely assumes the worst. So now they can at least game it out. And uh, have a you know a better idea of where rates are headed. There's you know less it, the less volatility, the more certainty, the better generally for the market from what I'm being told. So uh, that's where we're at. It's it's it, and uh, you know it could be different tomorrow. <laughs> it's the way it's been. Um, you know, although it, it does seem we we might be through. You know, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say we might be through the worst of the volatility, but you know, then something else happens. That that just seems like tempting fate if you say those words, Bill. Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm just you know I'm just it, it's week by week here. I'm actually working on another story this week where the same factors are influencing it, and it's in a way that I didn't expect either. I thought this market would might be doing well, but um, it's the same pricing issue and in, in the same rate, uh, you know, rate volatility but also rising rate environment that's just kind of changing the whole dynamic of the market and it's you got to start thinking of it that way um you know the old days are no longer here (laughs) so at least for now you know one thing i thought was really interesting in that article was that you noted that it really you know while people think oh it's the fed raising rates it this really goes back to things that were happening you know like the the omicron variant is is more of kind of affecting um, for that story, what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, that's what that's what a couple of folks said that the volatility really did start like around Thanksgiving last year, November. Um, that's not to say it wasn't compounded by all the you know by the stuff going on in Europe and the you know a lot of the market uh, uncertainty and then the run up in inflation, which also really is not just a new phenomenon. It was it's something it's just gotten worse and. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's where most people trace this back to is at least the fall of last year that we started, you know, the, you know, the people that were on top of it saw this, some of this coming. Now, the, the, one, the one thing that, you know, one of the, my sources said, for, you know, it's a, in the, you know, because this is also affecting the whole loan market, right? So a lot of these loans that can't get securitized and get sold in the whole loan market, um, if they're not held on, on the books, and then if there's a lot of volume hitting that market, apparently pricing is down a little bit for these loans, right? And that's a, a rare thing, too, uh, where you're selling uh, you know, high balance or jumbo loans at a, at a discount. That rarely happens. And so, uh, and I've seen in other loan trading uh, uh, you know, markets as well where you know, there's, a, there's a little bit of dip in the price. Um, 
again, I can only deal with the, the anecdotal evidence I got. I, I don't have a, a, a complete picture of the market, but that seems to make some sense um, uh, based on, you know, what's going on with the securitization market, um, you know. But once we're through this, I think, again, a lot of these loans, you know, we have a number of headwinds, if you will, the um, starting in April, and I guess it's already on the, on the um, rate sheets, the you know, loan-level pricing adjustments should help the private label market, at least from what I understand, because it'll uh, move more of the loans toward uh, PLS and away from the agencies. Um, and that's, you know, helps to offset the increase in the conforming loan limits, which did just the opposite. So you still have these forces that are kind of pushing back against each other and, you know, until we see how it all shakes out, but the, the optimistic outlook is, yeah, the market will stabilize. Um, it'll digest these newer rates. Uh, we know where they're headed more or less. And, uh, you know, it should be operating or start to operate more efficiently on the private label side. And I, I would expect on the, on the whole loan side. Um, so it's not like, uh, nobody's saying the bottom's going to fall out. It's just like, you know, we hit a couple speed bumps on the track here, and people got to keep their cars under control, okay? Just get around to the next part of the track. That's about what we're at. Yeah, I, I like that metaphor. You know, one of the things that you talked about, timing is so important, right? And the length of time it takes to get these uh, through the pipeline. One of the things you talked about is that, you know, the fact that there is a shortage of underwriters at that due diligence, you know, to do the due diligence review was really holding things up. Any but, I mean, that seems like that's not going to resolve anytime soon. No, that's been an ongoing, and we actually wrote about that earlier last year. It's been an, it's been an ongoing issue. They, I mean, there are efforts to, to you know, expand the um, uh, underwriting, uh, uh, I guess, strength or power, the, the number of people doing it. And there's also some natural shifting that goes on that um, we touched on in, in that series we did on it that, you know, when we were having record volumes, particularly with the refi side being way up over the last, you know, a couple of years, definitely the last year and the year before, right? There was probably more of a shift of the underwriter talent to the origination side and, and less of it's drawn for the due diligence for these secondary market deals. And now that volume might be, you know, crusting a little bit, it's still going to be high, I think, this year, but it, it probably isn't going to be at the levels it was in 221. Uh, definitely on the refi side, that might create more, um, you know, ability to draw some more underwriting talent um, back to the other side of the market. But it's still, yeah, it was. It, it came up again that that was part of the part of the delay. Part of the reason it's taking a little longer to digest some of these deals is they do have to go through due diligence if you want to get them rated. And you know, you got to park your car in line and wait to get through. <laughs> and so, I think some of the bigger houses you know, have that kind of captive almost the due diligence side, or at least they're, they're able to get more deals done. Clearly, I think that helped keep the volume up, you know, because there, there were some huge deals. Like, again, J.P. Morgan is is uh, is like the 800-pound gorilla. I mean, they were doing billion-dollar securitizations of, you know, high-balance jumbo loans all the way through this. So, um, you know, if anything, more than last year. So I, I'm working on crunching those numbers a little bit too, but it does look like, you know, they came out of their shoot this year with some pretty big deals already. Well, we'll be looking for that, uh, you know, looking for the reporting that you're doing this week and that story, uh, kind of a follow or additional. You know, another thing I wanted to bring up was a story that 
you reported on that it concerns uh, PLS, but it's coming from kind of an unusual place. So it, it's it's a reporting that you did about the CFPB and student loans, a lawsuit there, but that it has implications for the PLS market. So tell us a little bit about that lawsuit and why people are worried about what it might mean for the PLS market. Yeah, well, essentially, the it was not on my radar at all. And then I ran across a report that Moody's did on it. And then um, actually, we did have someone from the Structured Finance Association do an op-ed piece on it. Um, so I was I, th- I thought it was worth looking into, and it's it is it is a kind of a tangent. You wouldn't think it would affect the uh, PL, PLS market, but essentially the the, the student loan um, trusts they were set up as trusts, and then they subcontract or contract with servicers to you know collect delinquencies and so forth. And apparently, the, allegedly, the servicers, you know, did some of the, were involved in some of the same practices that we saw during the you know subprime crisis, where they were filing tons of lawsuits without proper, um, without you know, properly backing them up, or that, that you know, swearing to things that they didn't actually see. Those are the allegations, you know. So the so there are flawed lawsuits filed in state courts around the country. And I guess the defendants, who were you know people that they were accusing of this, you know, kind of grouped together through lawyers in a type. Of, it wasn't a class action, but it was. There's a number of named defendants who are all student loan borrowers. Decided to <clears throat> sue the trusts, um, and and uh, the argument was that under the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or the you know the act that created the bureau these trusts should be covered persons because they are uh, essentially by extension uh, engaging in the process by contracting with these servicers they shouldn't be you know they're not shielded from liability um, and the judge agreed um, and said they sh- they are covered persons and that by extension, means any trust in a securitization because these were securitized student loans. Essentially, they were put in a trust and then securitized, but then they they were uh, using the servicers to ensure the payments were made. Um, and everyone that I was talking to, including the CEO of the Structured Finance Association, said there's no reason to believe this wouldn't also apply to. Um, Sec, private label trusts is it's the same process that you, you set up a trust it's kind of an administrative entity that then you know is the vehicle through which or the conduit through which the um, mortgages as collateral are converted into securities and sold to investors and so really the trusts they don't have employees they're not they're, they're more of a legal vehicle or shell but all the risk would then just be passed right to the bondholders is is the concern. So they would likely sue the trust now if this ruling stands. It would be precedent for um, if somebody had bond if somebody had problems with a, a private label securitization, you know, in the in the mortgage market, they could then sue the trusts, and that often happens when there's you know defaults on mortgages or whatever. You know, people get nasty sometimes <laughs> and so they would sue the trust that would be the easiest uh, you know option for them because it would cover everything that the trust touches right including the servicers um, and those are you know the bondholders ultimately are the deeper pockets I guess even in the servicers or at least another deep pocket um, so that's the concern um, but the, the and you know it would just change you know it create more liability for uh, the trust but 
by extension for doing these deals because you'd have to kind of bulletproof them on the front end. And then if any of them got sued, um, obviously there there could be other consequences, uh, in, in including determining that some of the loans in the pools that are used for the securitization uh, have to be removed and, you know, because of, you know, flawed, you know, whatever, they, that, that they were not properly documented. Um, that, and that kind of stuff happens. It's, you know, it's part of what will probably happen with these student loan trusts. Um, so that's the concern. And then, you know, added, you know, they obviously the people in the industry and in the uh, PLS industry do not think trusts should be covered persons. And all this boils down to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau being able to essentially, you know, regulate by enforcement the the market. And this would be a kind of a new thing uh, that hasn't existed before. But the judge, you know, also is trying to be fair. And the um, parties here, you know, uh, asked or filed a motion to to file a, what's called an interlocutory appeal, which is a kind of a rare appeal where you actually appeal the, the the judge's decision immediately before the case is even decided and then the appeals court can choose to take it up and then issue a ruling so that's kind of where we're waiting it's been it's on appeal um it, and i just checked this morning and the, there's nothing new in the docket so the next thing would be for the, the appeals court uh and this is federal court federal appeals court to decide whether they're going to hear the um interlocutory appeal and if they do, how they're going to rule, they could rule for the judge or against them. And what it covers, comes down to is um, are trusts going to be considered covered persons under the law for the purposes of the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but also state attorney, attorneys general that could file suit against uh, any of these deals that they they feel there were issues with. Um, and, and the likely deals that would be the most subject to it would be essentially the non-QM type deals, the ones with riskier loans in them. Um, those are probably the ones that the regulators would look at more closely, according to Moody's. And they also probably are the ones that might be at more risk for servicing problems. And also they're going to look at deals that have newer servicers as opposed to the ones that, you know, maybe have been doing this a long time and uh, have a better handle on it. So th those are the dynamics and and the other part of the appeal is a technicality too besides you know arguing that you know the trust shouldn't be covered persons the appeal argues that this particular lawsuit is beyond the statute of limitations because it was approved during the time when the CFPB was fighting a, a case in uh, that went to the Supreme Court that argued it wasn't constitutional because its director was not um, you know, couldn't be removed by the president, right? And that's since been settled, and and but and then they recertified the suit more or less with a new under a new director that was properly gauged in the constitutional structure. So, but essentially, one of the arguments is, well, they because they authorized it under a past director who was, you know, in in his position and in, in what amounts to an unconstitutional way, then the suit the whole suit is past the statute of limitations that it. You know, it couldn't be kind of bureaucratically recertified. That one is way beyond my pay grade. Um, but apparently <laughs> it is It is one, you know, considered a, a possible route that the appeal would be upheld. Um, and we'll see, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll do a follow-up when, when we 
you see, but this is going to take a little while. Um, and the long short of it is even in the worst case, and it's, you know, I, I nobody likes uh, to, you know, get a letter from the IRS, right? Any more than they like to be get a letter from the CFPB, I'm sure. But it's not likely to chill um, new deals. It's just going to create another layer of, um, you know, uh, of liability that you got to work through uh, if, if it, you know, if it stands and the market will have to adjust to it. Um, and it does, you know, the bottom line is if you're doing everything right, then, you know, you're not subject to any, you shouldn't be subject to any kind of lawsuit. I mean, as long as you're doing the servicing right, that should, uh, you know, that's the best prophylactic. Um, but as we know, well, that is a problems. In yeah, life that's a very be. optimistic view. Yeah, right I know, there. <laughs> I know. That, that's what somebody, that's what, what, that's what somebody told me. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, first don't go out of bounds, but if you go out of bounds a little bit, yeah, this creates some new liability. And, and again, it, I don't mean out of bounds on purpose. It's just like anytime people uh, fight, you know, anytime there's a default or a money problem, um, you know, everyone points the fingers. And that's that's where this starts to become a little more problematic is you've got another vehicle in the, uh, you know, before they just sue the servicer, right? Now they can, you know, if this stands, they can sue the trusts. And the trusts are essentially a surrogate for the bondholders. And that just creates more risk for the deal, and that'll have to be factored in somehow if it if it stays the way it is, uh, at least regulatory risk. So you know, one of the other things that you said that I thought was really interesting uh, in the article was that another potential fallout is that the securitizations backed by financially weaker or less experienced servicers or deals involving loans to the riskiest borrowers may be more heavily scrutinized by the CFPB and state AGs. So in some ways, that shifts the balance. Um, you know, it, it becomes even harder for those kinds of, uh, you know, loans to go through th that kind of thing to happen. So, you know, how does that shift the balance of power within the market itself? Yeah, well, that's what, you know, a couple of folks I talked to said, essentially, at a time when the market is, you know, going toward purchase and non-QM, which essentially means riskier, generally, not always, I mean, a subset of the non-QM is, is going to be a little riskier because they, they do... You know, try to work with uh, borrowers who might have some credit dings or, you know, might have a tougher time getting a loan, um, you know, it, definitely an agency loan even, if, even through through HUD. They might, they, they will work, you know, with those and, uh, and assess the risk. So those might be the deals that, yeah, yeah, that the regulators pay closer attention to because there's more potential for uh, defaults and failures and so forth. And that's usually when problems can start if there's a, you know, too many in a particular deal or something like that. Um, even if everything was done right, stuff can go wrong. Um, and, you know, the other concern was that, you know, they'll pick off one or two. This, I mean, this again is, is you know, kind of how <laughs> regulation works. You try to you know, pick a case, an example that'll send, uh, you know, send a message to everyone else. And that was the concern is that they'll pick on one or two of these and maybe get some really uh, some settlements that, uh, you know, scare everybody else in, in, into settlements. So they won't actually end up in court. They'll just the threat it will be enough to force settlements. Um, and, we, you know, you see some of that clearly in the in the market on the regulatory side when it uh, overreaches, just like you see the abuses on the other side when there is no regulation. It's really a hard uh, balancing act. And I think, you know, this this is just the question the court's going to have to face is, you know, what 
you know, did the law, does the law cover trusts since they contract with servicers who clearly are um, covered and that's what they got to parse out. I don't have the answer to that. And, and you know, I'm kind of, uh, you know, like agnostic about which way it goes because I, I probably got a story to cover either way. But, um, you know, I, I would think if I'm in the private label securitization market, I'm not really happy that my liability is increasing at a time when I'm dealing with some other pre market pressures that, that are making already making it hard to price these deals. So it doesn't make my job any easier, I'm sure. So, I, you know, I, I, I understand why they are fighting the, the, the you know, the ruling or want the ruling overturned. Well, and this time last year was really, you know, a lot of the big stories um, that Housing Wire was covering was just the fact that after sort of going into a, 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 a much less active mode under President Trump, the CFPB, you know, has become a much more muscular organization. They, they ramped up hiring enforcement attorneys. Um, they, you know, they, they've done some of those things. So as you just talked about, you know, the Moody's report says a single settlement risks encouraging the CFPB and state AGs to file additional suits against other trusts, knowing that at least some of them will likely settle to avoid litigation costs and uncertainty. And that's, you know, that to your point, that's that regulation by enforcement and the kind of, you know, showing people a lesson, right? <laughs> That that can't be good news for for people involved here. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, this suit actually started under the Trump administration, so I think we tend to conflate politics and regulation. Uh, and there obviously is some impact because there's political appointees in these agencies. But you know, the the enforcement bureaucracy continues. You know, you can track its patterns across multiple administrations, and you know, they're always. You know, you know, that's their job is to find problems, right? So they tend to find problems, and then that can cause you know, heartburn. And if they overreach, which you know, like human beings, they do at times, and other times they probably hit hit the ball right where they're supposed to hit it. So I I, I don't know. I don't have an exact um, compass on on you know how this turns out, but I do know that uh, the more regulation, the the harder it is in the private market. Uh, you know, if you are doing things right, you still got to jump through those hoops, right? And deal with the lawyers and everything else. So, um, you know, it's like, you know, everyone suffers for the acts of a few bad apples because we all get put through the same ringer to prove we're not bad apples. <laughs> and so too much of that gets, gets, yeah, can I, it, there's no doubt why the industry, you know, would like to have less of this kind of regulation, or at least not an expanding liability scope when they're trying to do deals. Um, and, you know, most people are trying to do them right, you know, within the right boundaries. Uh, and I think, again, in any market, you know, it'll adjust to what the rules are, but when the rules are changing or, you know, being enforced or not being enforced, uh, it just, it creates more issues that way. Consistency definitely helps. So I, that's my, what I've seen is, you know, if, if, yeah, and, and it does change from administration to administration where the emphasis is, but, um, this is really a court ruling. It has nothing to do with any president. Right. <laughs> you know, the president has nothing to do with this. And, and uh, you know, we'll see how the courts rule. I, I, my, I, I have no clue. I have no clue on this one if they'll come back and say, yeah, it's an overreach and the trust shouldn't be covered. Or, yeah, they are. And, you know, market adjusts to it. And that's why, it, you know, that's why it's a story. I hate to say it, guys. I wish I could give you more um, uh peace of mind about it but it's 
I have no clue um, which way it's going to go. Well, we'll look forward to, as this unfolds, we'll definitely be keeping a close eye on that as far as what the court rules here, what that means going forward. Uh, The next story I wanted to talk to you about, you know, we've talked about the rise of non-QM and the interest in non-QM. And, you know, one of your recent stories was on Angel Oak uh, Mortgage REIT and and their uh, fourth quarter performance and really their 2021 performance overall. Can you tell us about what you found there? Well, that was, really, that was just a short earnings report, um, and you know they they've uh, you know they did quite well last year, uh, you know, relative to the year before. Um, you know that income was up. You know, and this is the REIT. Uh, Angel Oak is a complicated organization. It's like a family of companies, um, and the the REIT is basically a a, a vehicle for um, one of their vehicles for for you know. Uh, non-QM, you know, buy, they buy non-QM loans and they essentially, you know, you know, make money that way off the interest income when they securitize some of them. Uh, But then there's other angel companies or entities that also are doing, you know, active in the non-QM market. One, you know, even one dedicated more or less to ESG or uh, type uh, securitizations. So this this particular one, the REIT that they set up, it did very well last year, um, and and they also have a huge stockpile of loans that they can now trade or securitize um, or hold. The real question, though, I think becomes, and and we're not going to know the answer to this. This is the the to me the thousand dollar question for this year is, you know, Angel Oak is not alone. There was a lot of uh, um, you know loans originated or bought. Uh, last year by across the industry. Um, and the same rule applies on a mass scale if rates have changed and a lot of these loans were bought at, you know, or originated at 3% and we're now at a 4% environment. Um, they're worth less, right? And and so how do you deal with, with that? And, and, you know, that comes down to the other complex issue with hedging and did these companies actually hedge their bets? Um, on the interest rate environment. And I think that's where we're going to see, you know, what, what shakes out this year. If, if a lot of these loans had to be, you know, dumped at a discount that those are, that, that might explain a little bit why we're seeing so much activity in the, in the mortgage servicing rights market right now, because those assets are getting sold at record prices. And, and, and uh, a lot of the non-banks are involved in, you know, selling these MSRs to raise I mean, they do raise a lot of cash, so we, that might be the hedge, right? Um, we'll see, but that's that's the unknown. I, I, and it was pointed out to me that you know that's really going to make a difference for some of these companies that were really building up their their loan bases or or, or have a lot of these loans on their books right now. Um, if they can't securitize them at, at a really good you know level, um, and they can't sell them except at a discount, then you know are they? going to hold them on their books. They're really not set up to do that. So that's what we'll see. Uh, and some of them are probably going to do really well, you know, some of them, maybe not. You know, with, with your beat and all your stories that uh, there's always this level of complexity, right? So it's what makes it so interesting to watch uh, this part of the market. And also, you know, I'm sure is uh, makes it fun for you to do. Oh yeah. It's, I mean, it's a challenge. I don't know about fun because, <laughs> because I mean, I mean, it's, that's why they give you a paycheck. It's, 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 it, it, every day is an adventure, and I, I really do think um, 
you know, I learn so I have to learn something every day on this beat because I it's it's you know it's a it is it's very challenging and there's a lot of uh, dynamics to keep in mind, and it's easy to miss one. I mean, one nick you know can make all the difference. Uh, so I generally, I mean, the truth is. I have to talk to all the experts, and I hope that I'm getting what they're telling me right. I do my best to do that. That's what journalism does. But I, you know, the more I I learn, the less I know. Sometimes on this beat is what I feel like. <laughs> so. Well, I I think you've done a great job since since joining Housing Wire and diving into this. And you know, I just want to encourage our listeners. You can always contact Bill at wconroy at housingwire.com. He talks to people in the industry all the time. It's big part of what you do, Bill. And I know that you welcome, you know, people to reach out to you. You're always reaching out to new sources as well. But I just want to say thank you so much for being on Housing Wire Daily once again. And we will be looking for the follow-up to all of these stories you're talking about. Yeah, well, that's uh, job security. I'm going to definitely be looking into it. So <laughs> I appreciate it. It's, it's good talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. According to a recent article on the Great Resignation by MIT Sloan Management Review, more than 40% of all employees were thinking about leaving their jobs at the beginning of 2021. And that figure only grew as the year went on. So how are leaders finding ways to retain valued employees? Or maybe you're even asking these questions as a leader yourself. Step one to addressing this, empowering team members to take ownership of their professional growth. This is why we've invited leadership coach and author Renee Rodriguez to join us for this HW Plus virtual masterclass. Think of this class as a one-stop shop on what you need to know to take your leadership to the next level. Go to housingwire.com to learn more and register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.